Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Gopal Gupta from Loyola University Medical Center talking about epidemiology and genetics of RCC. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Parth Patel. I'm one of the PGY5 residents at Loyola. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce Dr. Gopal Gupta. He's one of our urologic oncologists. He did his fellowship at the NCI, and uh, now he's also um, the fellowship director for our uh, SEO fellowship. Uh, personally, Dr. Gupta is a research mentor for me, and uh, he's a great uh, teacher in the operating room. And so today we're um, looking forward to learning about uh, RCC from you, Dr. Gupta. Thank you, Parth, for that kind introduction. Um, and um, I just want to say this is a phenomenal platform um, during these turbulent times during COVID. Uh, we really need to focus on resident, continued resident, fellow learner education. And I'd like to thank the um, UCSF uh, Urology Collaborative Online Video Didactics for allowing us to participate. So I'm going to talk about uh, kidney cancer epidemiology genetics and staging, but not in that particular order. Um, having trained at the National Cancer Institute under Dr. Marston Linehan, uh, genetics of renal cell carcinoma is really very exciting to me. Um, I think it's really changed the field of kidney cancer and I hope I can convey that uh, to the uh, audience. So let's go ahead and get started here. So I have no uh, disclosures, I live a simple life. So let's start with the basics of epidemiology. Um, what we call a cancer of the kidney to epidemiologists and to a lot of the literature, they lump in renal cell carcinoma with upper tract urothelial carcinoma of the renal pelvis. But fortunately in these uh, statistics, 95% of these cases are actually RCC and only 5% are upper tract, which is a biologically completely different disease and unfortunately uh, overall more aggressive. Uh, in the United States alone, there are approximately 60,000 to 70,000 cases per year, depending on what year you look, and approximately 13,000 deaths. Um, 271,000 uh, cases of renal cell carcinoma are diagnosed worldwide annually, and there are about 116,000 deaths attributed to renal cell carcinoma. But like many cancers, there's a spectrum of indolent disease and aggressive disease. And there are over 200,000 uh, patients and cancer survivors who uh, are alive um, with the diagnosis of kidney cancer. Now, interestingly, there's been a large change in the pattern of detection. If you read Campbell's, uh, prior to the 1980s, uh, renal cell carcinoma was called the internist tumor. Uh, it presented with the classic triad of flank pain abdominal bulge or mass, hematuria, and usually other signs um, like fevers, cough, hypercalcemia, uh, many times polycythemia vera, elevated LFTs, occasional peripheral edema. But in the 1980s and onwards, there was a major increase in what we call incidentally detected tumors. So if you look at this uh, really interesting slide, looking at the rate of diagnosis of kidney cancer in the United States, in the 80s to 2005, you could see a massive increase, while mortality stayed relatively stable. You'd assume what would be causing this increase in kidney cancer? Is this an outbreak? 
Actually, if you look closely, it really was an outbreak of cross-sectional imaging. Um, technology, CT scans, MRI, ultrasound, decreased in cost, were widely adopted, and became extremely pre prevalent. These tumors often, when small, have no uh, signs or symptoms, and these are basically incidentally detected cancers. So we go back to epidemiology of the basics. The peak incidence of renal cell carcinoma is about 50 to 70 years of age. The median age is 66 years. Uh, there's a male to female predominance, two to one. Some attribute this to uh, uh, larger rates of smoking in, the, in, in men versus women. And there are some geographical and racial differences, and we'll outline some of these racial differences. Other risk factors, uh, there are many, many risk factors, but the ones that are circled here are the most solid uh, in terms of their uh, biological basis. And we'll touch on these uh, soon. But obesity, hypertension, smoking, occupational exposures, and genetic predisposition. If you look at this, uh, again, this is a, another example of the incidence over time in the United States. And this is more contemporary data with projections. Uh, there's a striking disparity in African-American men and women who have a higher incidence of kidney cancer. Now, there's really no biological basis for this, um, uh, but this is a, a shocking um, uh, data. Again, if you look at the average annual age-adjusted incidence rate per 100,000, uh, African-Americans uh, have the highest. Uh, their age-adjusted incidence is 8.2 versus 6.6. .6. And Hispanics are gaining uh, with it. Uh, AIR of 5.9. Uh, another disturbing fact is that uh, there's an increased incidence in younger uh, African-American men and actually an increased incidence in younger patients in general. They have increased mortality stage for stage when compared to Caucasians. And this disparity is not new. It's not just in renal cell carcinoma, but it's also seen in other can cancers. And there are many confounders, many explanatory reasons, socioeconomic status, performance status, comorbid conditions, quality of care, uh, but we don't have the answers. Again, we go back to risk factors and let's go through some of these. Obesity. Uh, this has been well studied uh, in kidney cancer. There've been uh, 10 case control, three cohort studies. Of these, 12 of these showed an association uh, with obesity in the incidence of kidney cancer. Uh, odds ratios uh, vary from 1.1 to 4.6, and there was a higher odds ratio with uh, uh, severe obesity. There's also a stronger association in women, and in a, in a particular study of interest in a Minnesota case control series, there was a 20% of RCCs were attributable to obesity uh, alone. Uh, one could surmise why obesity. Uh, some theories have been proposed. Uh, there's increased endogenous estrogens. There may be increased insulin growth-like factor. Um, and uh, there's increased rates of hypertension. This is a very nice study. Uh, this is a retrospective cohort study of almost 363,000 Swedish male construction workers. They had 16-year follow-up. And there were 759 cases of RCC in this cohort. And if you look here, when stratified by body mass index, um, you start to see a trend uh, looking at the relative risk on the right 
uh, stratified by BMI. As the BMI increased, you could see the relative risk of developing kidney cancer increased as well. Uh, with uh, BMIs over 28 having a 1.9 relative risk uh, compared to those uh, with a BMI less than 20. Again, in the same study, if you looked at blood pressure, blood pressure was also an independent risk factor for developing uh, kidney cancer, particularly diastolic blood pressure, you know, which is in the upper portion of the uh, table. Uh, patients who had practically uncontrolled diastolic uh, blood pressure um, had almost a twofold relative risk of developing uh, kidney cancer. Again, very nicely, this table shows the combined effect of increased BMI and hypertension. And uh, again, it shows a increased relative risk uh, of developing um, kidney cancer. As you can see at the top, uh, uh, is the blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and on the left is BMI. And those patients with the diastolic blood pressure greater than 100 and, uh, and uh, BMI of over 26 had a 2.7 uh, relative risk of developing uh, kidney cancer. A lot of patients will ask you in the clinic, is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can eat uh, to prevent kidney cancer? Uh, of course, there are no studies that have looked at this uh, in any great detail. Uh, so uh, this is really inconclusive. Uh, what I tell patients is to eat the way the USDA tells us to eat healthy. Now, diabetes do have, diabetics have a higher incidence and higher mortality from renal cell carcinoma, but there's a lot of significant confounding in the literature uh, looking at diabetes as an independent risk factor because uh, patients with diabetes are closely related and usually have obesity and hypertension uh, and or metabolic syndrome if they have hyperlipidemia. So the actual attributable risk to diabetes is uncertain. Smoking. Um, as a urologic oncologist, you know that smoking uh, is a risk factor for kidney cancer, but it's actually rather shocking in the clinic um, when patients uh, admit they had no idea that smoking cigarettes was a risk factor for kidney cancer. They all know lung cancer, but kidney cancer and bladder cancer, they haven't made that connection. Uh, but clearly, there is a dose-dependent increase in uh, kidney cancer incidence with smoking. It's really critical as a urologic oncologist to take a very detailed smoking history. Um, also, I like to ask about exposure as a, uh, uh, during the formative years growing up and secondhand smoke exposure. It's very, very important. Um, so you can see here the relative risk uh, goes up for current smokers and for former smokers versus non-smokers. Uh, this has been uh, uh, pretty heavily studied. Uh, I show some data here, 19 case control studies, five prospective cohort studies. There's a dose-dependent increase. And one of the things you can tell your patients is that there is a benefit to smoking cessation. And you can, and uh, that's very helpful to them to decrease their risk of uh, getting kidney cancer. Again, another smoking meta-analysis. Uh, you can see that almost all the studies show a relative risk greater than one, which means that there is a uh, uh, correlation with smoking and developing kidney cancer. 
Occupational exposures, these are uh, less well studied in large, in, in large cohort uh, literature, but um, certainly there is uh, some biological basis. Uh, patients who are exposed to diesel fumes, patients who are exposed to uh, paint thinners, chlorinated solvents, uh, patients who occupationally are exposed to heavy metals, uh, plumbers, uh, lead workers, steel workers uh, are at uh, potentially increased risk depending on their uh, exposure. Here's one that's in Campbell's. It's good to know um, if you uh, treat lots of patients at a, a transplant center, uh, but uh, acquired renal cystic disease uh, is an entity. These are patients who are on, who have renal failure. 90% of patients on hemodialysis for greater than five years will develop acquired renal cystic disease. Um, and of these, uh, in the literature, about 1.6 to 4% of these hemodialysis patients develop renal cell carcinoma. And um, the SASP question regarding this is it's typically the papillary uh, type 1 subtype. Um, patients who are on long-term dialysis should undergo ultrasound screening uh, of their kidneys to detect a solid or cystic solid mass um, resembling pap papillary type 1. Now, hereditary risk factors. This is really just, um, really sets kidney cancer apart from bladder cancer, testicular, and uh, prostate cancer. Um, initially, hereditary risk factors were thought to only account for one to 2%, uh, but then uh, there was the recognition of several inherited genetic kidney cancer syndromes, von Hippel-Lindau, uh, BHD, and we're gonna go through these one by one so I'm not gonna um, belabor this point. The interesting thing here though is that the mutations that were found in hereditary kidney cancers are present in sporadic kidney cancer, um, which is fascinating and really sets the stage for what we're gonna discuss next. So I wanna spend um, a few minutes uh, discussing staging and prognosis of kidney cancer. Uh, this is also probably the simplest uh, uh, staging and uh, prognostic uh, schema of all the urologic uh, cancers. Uh, but basically, um, uh, we use TNM staging. Uh, staging is based on tumor size and tumor characteristics. So you're looking at overall uh, circumference, uh, uh, signs of invasiveness into the surrounding tissues for clinical staging and pathologic staging. And also you're evaluating on the extent of spread. So regional lymph nodes and distant spread or adjacent spread um, to the adrenal, the liver, et cetera. Um, in kidney cancer in particular, nodal involvement is a really bad prognostic sign. We'll, uh, we'll look at that. So again, here's the summary of TNM staging for kidney cancer. Um, pretty simple. Uh, if you look at tumor stage, T1 uh, masses, the AUA has a, a, a great guideline on the surgical management of T1 renal masses. These are further subdivided by size into T1A and T1B. T1A is less than four centimeters. T1B is uh, four, between four to seven centimeters. Now T2 is interesting. Uh, T2 uh, encompasses tumors that are seven centimeters and above with no upper limit. So you can have a 15 centimeter mass, 20 centimeter mass, and if it doesn't have signs of extension or direct invasion, it can still be a T2 mass. So if you think about this, there's some gray area in TNM staging and prognosis. Uh, 
it's, uh, um, but uh, that's a, for a different discussion. So T3 uh, extends into the major veins and the perinephric tissues, uh, but not beyond gerotus fascia or the ipsilateral adrenal gland. And it's further subdivided into three categories. So T3A, the tumor extends into the renal vein branch uh, and or into gerotus or the renal sinus fat. And there have been many studies that look at the prognosis of renal sinus fat invasion, just likely worse than uh, gerotus. Um, T3B, the tumor extends into the subdiaphragmatic uh, inferior vena cava. And T3C, the tumor extends into the superdiaphragmatic inferior vena cava. And again, T4, uh, these are um, aggressive tumors. These are tumors that are typically large, uh, extend beyond gerotus and can have continued ex extension into the uh, adrenal gland um, or the liver, and actually, which is relatively rare. When looking at lymph nodes, uh, very simplified in kidney cancer, N0, no regional lymph node metastasis, N1, any metastasis to the regional lymph nodes, and M0, uh, distant metastasis, M1, uh, distant metastasis. So we don't really... Uh, think in terms of stage. Uh, we usually think in TNM, but staging is important um, when you're uh, thinking about advanced disease. So if you take TNM staging um, and you put this together, stage one is basically tumors less than seven centimeters. Um, if you look at the five-year survival, it's 95%. And really what this is telling you is that uh, there are kidney cancers that are biologically indolent. Um, how many other cancers can you think of with a mass less than seven centimeters with a 95% five-year survival? And this is uh, really highlighted you know, when you look at stage two in the blue box. These are tumors greater than seven centimeters with no upper limit in terms of size that are limited to the kidney. And again, five-year survival uh, with treatment is 88%, which is really fantastic. But stage three and stage four are the real challenge these are the more aggressive tumors. The stage three is tumor in the uh, renal vein, adrenal gland, and or in the vena cava, or any T stage with N1 involvement. And if you look at nodal involvement, five-year survival drops down to 59% and sometimes worse. Uh, when you have distant disease uh, in stage four, uh, this uh, five-year survival is down to 20%, and that's uh, relatively optimistic. Now, RCC is heterogeneous. This, uh, you should be looking at this when thinking about renal cell carcinoma. This is really what separates renal cell carcinoma from our understanding, biological understanding of the other GU malignancies. There, what I'm showing here, are there about seven types uh, of um, renal cell carcinoma. You've all heard of clear cell, papillary type one, papillary type two, Chromophobe, hybrid oncocytic. Oncocytoma is actually a benign tumor, as is angiomyolipoma. There is translocation renal cell carcinoma. Um, uh, and there's all these other ones that are not listed here, medullary, collecting duct, uh, et cetera, that we'll, we'll touch upon a little bit later. But if you look at this table or this graph, there's a hereditary gene under each subtype. And under that, it tells you how often is the hereditary basis of this cancer present in the sporadic. 
And if you look at clear cell, von Hippel-Lindau is altered in over 90% of sporadic kidney cancers. Capillary type 1, uh, CMET, uh, is about 10 to 15%. And the other ones are to be determined, uh, but there are some parallels. So Dr. Linehan would always use this uh, slide. Al Knudsen is uh, a famous scientist. And the question was, we've identified patients who have a family history of kidney cancer. Should we study those patients? Is this inherited form of kidney cancer going to shed light on the sporadic form? And I kind of gave the answer away in the previous slide. The answer is yes. But the hypothesis uh, and really everything resting on this in the late 80s and the early 90s were that sporadic and inherited forms of cancer are caused by mutations of the same gene. And uh, for the most part, yes, but we're making a lot of discoveries and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So this is a highly tested um, material on your SCSPs and your in-service. So we'll go through these and um, the first is von Hippel-Lindau. This is responsible for clear cell kidney cancer, hereditary papillary renal carcinoma, also known as PAP type 1, uh, hereditary leiomyomatosis renal cell carcinoma, papillary type 2, Berthog-Dubé, um, which has hybrid uh, um, oncocytic tumors, chromophobe, and oncocytoma. And then there's SDH, uh, which causes paragangliomas and some kidney cancer, and tuberous sclerosis complex, which can cause clear cell and angiomyelopomas of the kidney. Let's start with uh, von Hippel-Lindau, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. This is a hereditary syndrome. Prevalence is about 1 in 36,000. Um, the uh, penetration of renal tumors in patients who are carriers is about 24 to 45%. 60% uh, of patients have either renal tumors, cysts, or both. Um, they tend to be multifocal, bilateral, and, they, and depending on the uh, mutation type, can be very early onset. Um, uh, what, one of these shocking numbers is that the, some of these patients are at risk of developing 1,100 cysts and 600 tumors per kidney in their lifetime, um, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, clinical features of VHL, you can get tumors in both kidneys. You get pheochromocytomas of the adrenal glands. These are also life-threatening. You get pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors in the pancreas. You get benign uh, hemangioblastomas uh, in the brain um, and in the brain stem, which can cause significant morbidity. Uh, they also get retinal angiomas, which can lead to blindness and uh, endolymphatic sac tumors of the inner ears. Uh, this is a classic CT scan of a patient with, um, and you can see on the, uh, on the left-hand side, it's uh, um, contrast enhanced. You can see multiple cysts uh, in both kidneys. So this would be bilateral, multifocal uh, kidney cancer. Some of the cysts are more complex and solid than the others. Uh, you can have varying degrees of complexity. And here's a gross specimen, you can see uh, multiple tumors and cysts uh, in the gross specimen. Um, again, just showing the multiple renal cysts and the clear cell vacuolated cytoplasm um, at uh, higher magnification. So 
when these when VHL was uh, identified the gene in 1993, VHL is a tumor suppressor. So you need to have uh, loss of function for tumorigenesis. Uh, it's autosomal dominant uh, and it has high penetrance. It's a small, um, it's a small uh, protein. It has three exons. Um, with mutational analysis, we we're able to identify a VHL mutation in nearly 100% of patients who are affected uh, with uh, the hereditary von Hippel-Lindau. Um, and they've done some genotype phenotype studies, which are ongoing, looking at if you inherit a mutation, a deletion, a particular type, you can have different penetrants of the different uh, phenotypes. So this is really uh, how inherited kidney cancer works. Uh, if you, you have two alleles, VHL uh, is located on each allele, so you have two copies. If you have the inherited form, you inherit either a deletion or a mutation or methylation on one allele. So one copy of VHL is uh, rendered uh, inactive. And then as life goes on, uh, 3P is a very fragile site and is often deleted spontaneously and you're lacking VHL. Uh, um, in the sporadic form, uh, and that's why that would happen earlier because you already have one hit. You only need the second hit. In the, in, in the sporadic form, you have to develop both hits. Um, and the reason uh, that clear cell is more prevalent is that if you get a mutation or a deletion on one copy, 3P is very fragile. And if you smoke, if you have occupational exposure, you can cause that second allele to break off. So I'm not gonna bore you with the science, but this is really, really fascinating. I mean, if you think about it, this is the first kidney cancer gene found in 1993. Before then, we didn't have any. So uh, the race was on. What did VHL, the gene, encode? So VHL, is uh, I showed you, is a three exon protein. Uh, it's part of this, uh, um, its job is to uh, degrade hypoxia-inducible factor one and two, which are potent transcription factors. So under normal oxygen tension, VHL is circulating in the cytoplasm and is degrading HIF1 and HIF2. When VHL is gone or mutated, uh, the cell is still under normal uh, uh, oxygen conditions, but it fools itself into thinking that it is uh, undergoing hypoxia because von Hippel-Lindau cannot degrade uh, HIF1 and HIF2. These then go into the nucleus and start to transcribe a bunch of pro-cancerous uh, tumors, VEGF, GLUT1, TGF, uh, many, many um, uh, downstream pathways. And if this is ringing a bell, the discovery of VHL uh, was just um, appreciated in the 2019 Nobel Prize in Medicine. So Dr. Bill Kalin, Dr. Uh, Peter Ratliff, and Dr. Greg Semenza, Dr. Semenza's team, after VHL was discovered in 1993 at the NCI, discovered the HIP transcriptional process in 1995, and over 25 years later, they were awarded the Nobel Prize um, for elucidating further uh, this pathway. Um, this ushered in uh, really uh, numerous FDA-approved uh, therapeutics for kidney cancer, 
uh, and not just in the hereditary population. This is in sporadic patients with clear cell, non-clear, et cetera. You recognize these names, Bevacizumab. Uh, 2005, the FDA approved uh, sunitinib or Sutent and Serapinib when I was a resident. It's a very exciting time. Um, and now there are so many tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Really this uh, brought into the, this is the landscape that was inherited. So before 2005 was the first immune therapy era um, with uh, high dose IL-2 and interferon. 2005, after the elucidation of hypoxia inducible factor and HIP and BHL ushered in FDA approval of over 15 tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And now we're looking at uh, novel uh, MET inhibitors and uh, immune uh, agents um, in, the, uh, in the new era. So let's move on to hereditary papillary renal cell carcinoma, HPRC. This was described in 1994 at the National Cancer Institute. Again, these are patients who um, developed a bilateral multifocal papillary type 1 uh, renal cell uh, cancer. Um, and is usually at a later onset, not as early as von Napoleon But these patients were at risk of developing up to 3,000 tumors per kidney. Again, this is autosomal dominant, highly penetrant, and a kidney-only syndrome. There were no skin, no other manifestations. Uh, in the body. And this was traced down to the MET proto-oncogene located in the long arm of chromosome 7. So if you look at this uh, kidney, this gross kidney, you can see multiple um, papillary type 1 tumors, uh, really small ones, uh, microscopic tumors, um, and these larger ones. And they usually have this clear gold uh, color. And if you look at the uh, micrograph, you can see the papillary architecture. Um, the stalks cut at, at an angle in the fibrovascular core. So MET, very interesting. We talked about von Hippel-Lindau being a tumor suppressor. MET is a prototypical oncogene. So to cause cancer, you need more MET, right? So you have to ramp it up. So germline MET mutations are activating mutations of MET. Um, and they're actually found in 15% of sporadic papillary type 1 uh, RCC. Another way, uh, besides MET activation, that you can get uh, increased MET activity is uh, to have trisomy or multiple copies of chromosome 7. And this actually happens in up to 75% of sporadic papillary type 1 renal cell carcinoma. Again, MET encodes a tyrosine kinase membrane receptor. Uh, its ligand is hepatocyte growth factor, um, and uh, these are gain-of-function mutations, um, and so you get a lot of MET. Again, this is just a schematic showing how this works. Uh, you get activation of the MET receptor because you have an activating mutation, you, uh, and then that causes downstream uh, um, changes intracellularly that uh, benefit proliferation into papillary kidney cancer. And in the red, you may recognize this new agent, cabozantinib. Dr. Tony Chueri uh, in Boston recently published on this, a uh, very promising um, uh, anti-MET agent that's active in renal cell carcinoma. Berthog-Dubé syndrome. Uh, this is a rare autosomal dominant familial syndrome that occurs in about one in 200,000, so it's uh, about five times less common than von Hippel-Lindau. It was initially described 
because of its pathognomonic skin lesions in 1977. And the first renal cancer case was reported in 1993. Again, these patients were tracked at the National Cancer Institute. Um, this syndrome uh, is uh, defined by pulmonary cysts, cutaneous fibrofolliculomas, and renal tumors. Um, after much searching at the NCI, uh, the, the gene was identified. It was folliculin on the short arm of 17. Um, and folliculin uh, functioned as a tumor suppressor gene, much like von Hippelin. You can see here, uh, fiber folliculomas are highly penetrant, about 85%. Um, you, they develop after puberty. They're seen on the face, neck, and trunk. They're benign lesions. Uh, they, have, uh, they cause no problems. Uh, once I started seeing these in patients, I felt like I was seeing them on everyone. <laughs> but um, really, I, you, you can't make, you, it's difficult to make the diagnosis by looking alone. You have to do a micrograph and uh, a dermatologist can uh, identify these. Another interesting um, uh, phenotype of BHD or pulmonary cysts, if you look at uh, the CT scan, you can see multiple what we call blebs in the uh, lung tissue. And if you look at, uh, you can see what these blebs look like in, in um, the body and the lung there. Uh, these often rupture and 25% of patients will come to you and say they have a history of a known pneumothorax. And you start to put that together. Pneumothorax, fibrofolliculomas, could this patient have uh, Berthog-Dubay? Uh, now the kidney tumors uh, are a little bit different. They're mixed, they're usually slower growing. Um, the penetrance in the BHD patients is about 25 to 35%, and they typically occur later in life and are not as aggressive. Um, in this 2005 paper by Pavlovich, uh, in the Berthog Dubay patients, these are patients who were germline tested for it, this was the distribution of uh, histopathology. So there's something called a hybrid tumor, which is a hybrid of oncocytoma, which is benign and chromophobe kidney cancer. Um, if, you, uh, if your pathologist calls this as a, a hybrid oncocytic tumor, you really need to think of Berthog Dubay BHD testing uh, and refer to a genetic counselor at your institution. Now this is the kind of the very aggressive, very scary uh, inherited kidney cancer uh, syndrome. And everyone should be aware of this. Um, this is called hereditary Lyomyomatosis renal cell carcinoma syndrome, HLRCC. Uh, this is characterized by cutaneous lyomyomas. These are, these are just these bumps on the skin. Uh, uterine lyomyomas, which are also known as fibroids, and a very, very aggressive form of uh, kidney cancer. So this was described in the 1970s. Um, they did not make the association with the kidney cancer. Uh, that association was made in 2001. Before that, it was known as Reed syndrome. Um, fortunately for these patients, the renal cancer phenotype has low penetrance uh, with an incidence of about 2 to 15%. Um, and what I'll show you is that uh, this is extremely high risk of more mortality um, because of the aggressive histology and the early onset metastasis. This has been seen in patients uh, metastasis and death from kidney cancer in patients as young as nine and 11 years old. So uh, cutaneous lyomyomas, unlike the fibrofolliculomas, these occur on the trunk and the extremities. They occur typically when the patient's in their 30s. Uh, they can be grouped um, or sometimes they can be solitary. 
And the patients often will report uh, that these are extremely painful. Uh, sometimes not painful, sometimes very painful. So painful they can't wear a t-shirt. Um, they have light sensitivity of these lesions. Um, and you can ascertain that uh, up to 81% of these patients uh, have this phenotype. Uh, uterine leiomyomas, these are large multiple fibroids as seen on the CAT scan. Uh, you can see the, the muscle in the uh, micrograph. Uh, these present early in females, uh, young age, 20 to 30s, and it's almost 98% penetrant. So a, a lot of these, many of the female uh, HLRCC patients will have this. Um, before they understood that this was related, part of the HLRCC syndrome with renal cancer, this is known as Reed syndrome, and a very high percentage of these women who were affected had had hysterectomies because of uh, menometrorrhagia. So papillary renal cell type 2. This is uh, uh, the, the histologic subtype you see in patients with HLRCC. Um, and as we'll talk, papillary type 2 is a uh, kind of a throwaway container box to bin pap uh, a lot of papillary tumors but uh, this type of PAP2 can only be characterized if they are HLRCC germline positive. Um, these are typically solitary. Uh, the scary thing is that these are typically cystic in appearance, um, and they have small intra-cyst uh, nodularity. So if you see at the bottom left CT scan, you can see the lift, you can see the cyst on the right kidney, and then you could see some uh, wall thickening, some mural enhancement. Um, if you didn't know this patient had HLRCC, you would say this might be a Bosniak 2F, Bosniak 3 cyst, but in these patients, this, is a, uh, this in itself can be a lethal uh, presentation. Uh, the other difference is that these, instead of spreading distant, like clear cells to the lungs, these uh, usually have regional lymph node metastases. Um, they have a distinct histological pattern, but for uh, non-GU trained pathologists, it can still be um, uh, difficult to uh, diagnose. Uh, and uh, if you're trying to put this together, I would send out to a uh, institution that specializes in this. You can see that they have large nuclei uh, with a clear perinuclear halo. Um, and sometimes you'll get the report that says uh, that there is a cystic papillary pattern, tubulopapillary, eosinophilic or tubulosolid. Now, um, I was a biochemistry major. I'm sure many of you were. If you are looking at this, uh, this is the Krebs cycle, right? I mean, we all know this. Uh, this is how you convert glucose the most efficiently into ATP. Um, and interestingly enough, HLRCC was mapped to uh, a gene on chromosome 1Q, and that gene was fumarate hydratase. And if you had to memorize the Krebs cycle, you would remember fumarate hydratase, so it's right there on the left side of the screen. Fumarate catalyzes the conversion of fumarate to malate. So this is a little bit mind-blowing to me and to um, the fact that a Krebs cycle enzyme, this is an enzyme, not a protein, um, the loss of this enzyme leads to this highly aggressive form of kidney cancer. And the mechanism is really interesting. Um, when you, uh, when fumarate is inactivated, you get buildup of fumarate, which is its substrate. 
and it actually can cause pseudo-hypoxia, just like we discussed about in von Hippel-Lindau. Um, it also shuts down uh, oxidative phosphorylation, and the cell uh, can only use glycolysis and some other really interesting lipid pathways. And what we say is that these cells are addicted to glucose. So they exhibit the real Warburg phenomenon, no oxidative phosphorylation just glycolysis. Um, very, very pet-avid, um, but that, you know, that's a different uh, a discussion. So that was really what I'm going to discuss in terms of hereditary uh, kidney cancer and genetics. Um, now we're going to shift gears a little bit to describe um, all the efforts, and these are really Herculean efforts by um, uro urologists, urologic oncologists, translational basic science researchers, the researchers, the best cancer centers in the country and, and throughout to characterize uh, sporadic kidney cancer. And you can see these very important uh, efforts, especially from the Cancer Genome Atlas. So the TCGA is an NCI um, initiative to appropriately collect specimens from around the United States and to do uh, next generation sequencing, um, proteomics, um, and genomics uh, to characterize these uh, alterations in sporadic kidney cancer. And uh, we're just going to go over some of the findings um, because it has led to a reclassification in the WHO um, schema for kidney cancer. So some of the interesting things, if you look at just pure mutational load, so how many mutations does a cancer carry? Uh, and this is uh, shown on the left. Um, kidney cancer is a low mutational load uh, cancer compared to melanoma. If you look at melanoma, uh, melanoma is heavy mutational load. Um, the other thing that the TCJ has elucidated is, uh, again, it confirmed Knudsen's hypothesis. Um, Patients with hereditary kidney cancers, those same genes are often mutated in sporadic kidney cancer. It also elucidated several new targets, um, including PBRM1, so polybromal, um, uh, protein involved in chromatin remodeling, SETD2, uh, BAP1, mTOR, P10. Some of these were known. Uh, PIK3CA, we've known about, and TOR. Um, but this is really interesting. If you take a DHL uh, knockout mouse, you don't really develop kidney cancer. You develop renal cysts. Um, so DHL loss in itself probably isn't enough to push uh, into carcinogenesis. And this is what this cartoon is showing. Um, I like to use this analogy of looking for your keys under the lamppost. So they found DHL and chromosome three and right on the same chromosome, right adjacent on the short arm of 3P was BAP1 and PR, PBRM1 this whole time. And so if you lose VHL, that's what this cartoon is showing, you get loss of 3P. And then if you lose PBRM1 due to mutation, you start to get low-grade kidney cancer, clear cell kidney cancer. If you lose BAP1, you get high-grade. Uh, really fascinating science, and this is really maturing um, uh, across in many labs across the country. The same with papillary. 
So I told you, I mentioned that papillary non-type 1 tends to be kind of a wastebasket of histopathologic characterization. Um, and the TCGA has started to show some interesting uh, uh, binning for papillary. So we all know that papillary renal cell carcinoma type 1, uh, that's the MET activation, that's the, the activating uh, MET mutation in HPRC. Uh, survival is good. Uh, they rarely have set D2. The DNA is not hypermethylated, and they never have FH mutation. Then there's a papillary RCC 2A, 2B, and a 2C group. And 2C is the very kind of the, the from good to worse. And you can see DNA hypermethylation, FH mutation, uh, check down alterations, and some of these newer targets like NRF2, ARE activation. And here's a schematic um, of this. This is a really nice review by um, Dr. Rathmel, um, published in AACR. And remember, the kidney is a complex organ, and there's multiple portions that these arise from. So clear and papillary, based on this genetic analysis, are arising from the proximal convoluted tubule. And you can see here, uh, I'm not going to labor this, but that, this is just the graphical form of what was seen in that table. Um, and I'll leave you with this. Uh, chromophobe is also really interesting. Um, one of the first observations in chromophobe, uh, hybrid oncocytic and oncocytoma, was that there are mitochondria that weren't functioning. So if you look at an EM electron micrograph of a chromophobe tumor or an oncocytic tumor, you'll see all these bloated, weird-looking, misshapen mitochondria and not working. Um, so there's a lot of interest in looking at mitochondrial DNA um, and figuring out uh, the genes there. So uh, a couple more slides. Um, this is the WHO 2016 renal cell carcinoma classification. Uh, again, these are based on descriptive or characteristic features. Uh, I think we've talked about on the left side, we've talked about clear cell, papillary, chromophobe, some of these more aggressive, uh, less often seen, thankfully, are collecting duct carcinoma, renal medullary carcinoma. Uh, we talked about oncocytoma, which is benign. And of course, renal cell carcinoma unclassified. There's things we don't know. There's things we're learning. But what's most interesting is that you can see from the time I was a resident to now, they actually updated to include seven more new renal cell tumor subtypes. Um, and let's look at a table of them just briefly. So these are the new additions. Uh, the first one, multilocular cystic renal neoplasm of low malignant potential. So this is kind of the, what we just talked about. They have VHL mutation. They may not have picked up these other uh, differentiating mutations. Yes, it's a cancer, but it has low malignant potential. Maybe uh, similar to um, the uh, Furman grade one uh, cystic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, the uh, MIT uh, family of translocation carcinomas, uh, these uh, are interesting. They happen in pediatric and young adult patients. The mean age of this is 30 years. Uh, you have to do appropriate uh, fish or staining for the translocation. Um, certain labs in the country can do this. Uh, there's tubulocystic RCC, male predominance, mean age of 60 years. These are pretty indolent, and um, you can see some of the molecular features. Um, there's some gain of uh, 
chromosome 7 and 17. That's where BHD, folliculin, and um, MET are. Uh, we talked about the um, acquired cystic disease associated RCC, papillary type 1. Typically, um, you should look for these in patients who are on hemodialysis. Then there's the clear cell papillary renal cell carcinoma. I've seen more of this in my practice in younger patients. Uh, oftentimes you would get uh, our pathologists, our geopathologists would write clear cell with papillary features. Um, and we didn't know what to make of that. We'd go to tumor board and say, well, is it clear cell or is it papillary? And now it has its own category, clear cell papillary renal cell carcinoma. And that's three to 4% of renal tumors. Fortunately, it's indolent. Uh, you can see it in end-stage renal disease, and uh, we've seen it in young patients. Um, we talked about, we touched upon SDH. These are the patients, there is a familial syndrome uh, where patients can get uh, paragangliomas, uh, pheochromocytomas, and in a very small percentage of these patients, they get renal carcinomas, very eosinophilic. Um, and the last one is they're sent, uh, they've categorized HLRCC-associated RCC. So you can only have this uh, papillary type 2 if you have the germline mutation in FH. And like I talked about, the interesting molecular features are a metabolic shift to aerobic glycosis, increased fumarate, and HIP1-alpha. And uh, there's some really nice, um, again, Dr. Chueri has been running some very nice studies uh, on inhibitors targeting HIP1 and HIP2, uh, which seem to have some promise. And uh, we'll end there. And um, thank you very much uh, for listening. So I think Parth is here. Um, we'll give everyone a second to take a break. Uh, I hope we didn't go over. Um, and uh, if there are any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. My yeah, so there's, a couple of, there's a couple of questions, Dr. Gupta. Um, the first was in regards to uh, the beginning of the talk uh, about risk factors. Um, and the question is if there's any evidence that obese individuals, um, that the risk factor is just that they're more likely to have cross-sectional imaging. Um, and, and maybe you can also speak to, um, if you counsel these, uh, these folks at all um, in regards to risk of recurrence and that kind of thing, if they have specific risk factors. Yeah, uh, so right now, uh, that's a great question. We're not doing any type of uh, population screening for kidney cancer, <laughs> although I think the emergency rooms are trying to do that for us. Uh, when you come in, uh, everyone gets thrown into a scanner. Um, in regards to obese patients, there may be a higher incidence, but the literature I've seen is that these tumors, on the contrary, are actually more indolent in the obese patients. Um, and that's what the literature shows. Um, so um, yeah, so the, the whole epidemiology part, um, it's not a hard science, uh, it's correlative. They're looking at cohort studies, um, retrospective studies, and a, a, so, uh, you know, cause and effect type things. There's no smoking gun there. All right, and another uh, good question here. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you screen VHL patients um, and maybe you can stratify by before operating on them uh, while they still have maybe small masses and then maybe after you've cleaned them out, how would you screen and if there's a difference in the two? All right, so uh, taking care of 
hereditary kidney cancer patients is, um, you know, um, is a whole skill set in itself. And uh, you need to work hand in hand with your genetic counselor. So I'll, I'll give you two scenarios. One scenario is a patient who comes to you with perhaps younger age and might have bilateral uh, renal masses. Uh, the guidelines currently from the AUA are any patients, I believe under 45 who have kidney cancer should be um, referred to a genetic counselor for a discussion of genetic testing. Um, so in a patient who, you gotta take a very close family history. You wanna ask other, you know, uh, you know how we ask about uh, anyone else in your family had kidney cancer. Um, you start to uh, elicit that. Um, the other thing that uh, could be going on is, you know, that person could be the proband. So they may not have had it in their family, but they may be the first one to have a spontaneous VHL mutation. So that has to be ascertained too. But really the, the, the things you need to think about are age and multifocality when you're thinking about a genetic kidney cancer. Uh, one thing I didn't talk about was surgical management of hereditary kidney cancer. Um, and based on studying patients with hereditary kidney cancers, uh, really the AUA guidelines say that masses less than three centimeters um, have minimal risk of metastasis. So if you start to think about, let's say a patient with known von Hippel-Lindau, uh, they're, they're at lifetime risk of developing multiple renal masses in a kidney, you only have a couple times you can go in and take out all these masses without rendering that kidney non-functional. So really we wait until the largest dominant tumor is about three to four centimeters. And then the goal is to go in, remove that one, and to remove every other visible cyst and solid. So it's to clean them out, to reset the clock on that kidney. Um, and then how fast they return and recur really depends on their VHL uh, mutation. So that's the genotype phenotype. But you really have to uh, um, have experience, uh, employ uh, techniques of enucleation, maximal parenchymal sparing. You can't think of it as I'm gonna go on clamp, take this off, because if you're removing 20, 20 plus tumors, you can't do that in a reasonable warm ischemia time. You have to be comfortable with uh, off-clamp techniques, enucleation, uh, et cetera. All right, I think that's, um, that's it for the questions that we received from the participants. Um, so thanks okay. again, Dr. Gupta. All right, well, thanks everyone. Uh, everyone take care. Thanks, Parth. Yep, sure. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.